graphic novel infotainment center located in the pitched frenzy that is Sunset Boulevard uh, all the way down around the burrito place and the most harrowing right hand turn off Sunset into a parking lot that you'll ever make in Los Angeles. It's the Nerd Melt, uh, Nerd Melt showroom here uh, in what is an unheated back room that normally people would be put in for punishment if they were the children of a cult. Uh, <laughs> we invite you to spend money to sit here and join us. Uh, we recently upgraded this. When I say we, of course, I mean I came in personally and went to Ikea and bought all these seats from the <laughs> I Heart Going to School in Romania in the 50s collection. <laughs> it's a new collection. It's one I've been working on with Tom Ford for a while. We want people to sit up straight so they can learn the precepts of the party and uh, they don't fall asleep at any point and then they can also share their thoughts with the members of their collective afterward. Uh, so once again, we uh, uh, join hands and join hearts hoping to strike comedic gold or at least some kind of gold uh, as the evening progresses here. Uh, it's been a, a, People have given me some lovely gifts here. A small bottle of vodka, not this one, an even smaller bottle of vodka, which uh, <laughs> is the, the, the most solace-laden bottle of vodka at all, uh, of all. Uh, a, a, a miniature bottle of vodka is like a miniature support animal, uh, like a miniature support pig or a miniature support pony. It's there for you when you need it, and it's small enough to carry. Uh, so if you're on a plane or in a car, uh, say you're driving, and you're going on the freeway, and you're, you're all upset, and someone just cut you off, like, you take out the vodka, you take a big hit, and uh, you turn to your pony, and you're like, what's up? And the pony's like, you oughtn't be drinking. And then you turn back to the pony, and you go, we're on the 405, we're not even moving. And then... The pony goes, well, if we're not moving, can I change the square-ass channel? They're about to play the police. And then you go, yeah, play whatever you like. There's a pony channel on 33. And the pony's like, I'm hipper than that. Uh, I'm equo-hipper than that. Uh, I'm eo-hippus. I am eo-hipper than your eo-fucking-hippus. Uh, and then you turn and go like, I can't believe we're having this conversation and the pony's not there anymore. And then you realize you're in your driveway and you just smoked a blunt and... This was all a theory, but a really good theory, and one that needs to be put into practice. And God damn it, if I have anything to say about the future of this country, it's going to be soon. Uh, in garages and airports all over America. They give you those little bottles on the plane, so you really have to order two or three, right? Uh, just to get your party going. I mean, if you have one uh, hit of an airplane bottle of vodka or whatever, you're like, hey, that was like drinking the memory of vodka. And then... <laughs> By the third one, you're back in the plan. And then by the fourth one, you're taking over parts of Georgia and Uzbekistan. And uh, by the fifth one, you've, you've started your own distillery in Iceland and uh, called it Munjak. Even though there are no native Munjaks to Iceland, it's far too cold uh, for Munjaks in Iceland. I mean, not that I did. I, it's not an experiment I performed. I'm not an uh, animal cruelty person. I wouldn't bring a tropical small deer to a, a, a volcanic northern country and then like, run free, mighty deer. And then the, the deer comes back two minutes later. Fuck it's freezing. I am freezing balls up here. And you're like, I thought you were a female deer. And he's like, that's how much you know. Uh, I'm by myself. I'm stagged tonight. And the, the whole island is too cold for my tropical taste. And then uh, you say to the deer, um, do you know this pony in Encino? And the deer's like, I heard you've been having this issue lately with miniature support animals. 
Because a munchak is as small a deer as you can get. They're the size of maybe a dog, a little dog. You know, not like a big, you know, not like a slobbery. The kind that they go, that jumps up on you and has an erection and it's licking at you. And you're like, <laughs> gross, I'm going to die. And, and uh, where's the nearest sink? And that's all you can think of. Or like, how much hand sanitizer is necessary for like a Great Dane slobber versus like a Doberman slobber or even horribly, more horribly than you can imagine, an Irish wolfhound, which are like nine feet tall and are the scariest dogs in the world. Not because they're scary. They don't bite you or nothing. It's just a dog that's the size of like something you ride is vaguely inappropriate in my world. If you're going to be a llama, be a fucking llama. You know what I mean? Don't be a dog on my time because I don't want it. I'm going to take you over the Andes and pack you with textiles and uh, precious stones that I'm going to bring to the Inca, the head Inca uh, at that point. I didn't talk to the llama at any juncture in that narrative you might have noticed. Uh, there was no, however, there was a small vicuna by the side of the road that I shared some confidences with. And let me tell you something. The four-legged animals of the Andes can keep a secret better than any animals in the world. That's why they have those enigmatic smiles. Uh, there's nothing they don't know about the history of South America. And they have those alert ears, right? Like a llama will go like, wah, wah, and then you're like, really? And the llama's like, uh-huh. Uh, you haven't felt a rug till you felt the rug I can make and shit. <laughs> and all the hipsters of the world wear those like Andy's hats with the little balls hanging off them and shit. And there was a lot of llamas that put, di- put down their fur in service of those hats. And I think the least you could do is drink a bottle of vodka and have a conversation with an imaginary tiny animal in tribute. <laughs> To the sacrifice of their wool. I think the thing that the conquistadors were most blown out by was that the Incas had perfected body armor that was made of cotton. So it was lightweight, durable, and fucking, you could breathe in it and you could take it off and it was like the breeze came through it. And they were all wearing armor. I think within weeks they ditched all theirs and just killed Incas and took their armor and shit like that <laughs> because they were like, all of a sudden they're wearing sandals, you know, like this is what invented New Spain, you know what I mean? They, they went to a place and went, there's cotton in hammocks. What the fuck were we thinking? Let's go back to Spain and sleep all. All the middle of the day out uh, and smoke uh, by all means the, uh, a, a, a gentleman named Scott Hennaby a, a, a sheaf of cards here he's a rock photographer so he tells me and that's a, a worthy uh, 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 pastime and, and an even more uh, worthy vocation. I happen to know a couple of rock photographers, a fellow named Rob, and uh, he's really tall and good looking and he has leonine hair and he looks like he's in a band. And that's what makes it so awesome when you see him because you'll go, hey, Rob, and he goes like, hey. <laughs> And you're like, really? Because he has the jeans and the boots. It's, he's like, I don't know how to describe it. Between, a cross between David Coverdale and a giant panda. He's, he's not fat in any way. He's just got the, the soft, silky allure of a panda. And the self-assured, awesome machismo of David Coverdale. <laughs> and my next album is going to be called The Self-Assured Machismo of David Coverdale. <laughs> We recorded it uh, in San Francisco uh, over the holiday. Uh, there was an audience there. Um, I just wanted to tell you that in case you listen to it and are like, where was this made on an ice flow? Uh, <laughs> t- uh, we were going to call it Taste the Solitude, but uh, <laughs> Feel the Gathering One, uh, <laughs> Voice in the Darkness. There was a lot of titles. 
I made an album in Minneapolis uh, years ago, and I was pretty drunk uh, a lot of the time and high. And uh, I, I remembered everything I was going to say, and I did it. And we did it four times. In, you know, you do two shows each night, and you try to get it. And we uh, we did a couple shows, and they're okay. Then we did the early show Saturday, and I couldn't buy a fucking laugh. Uh, Twenty five minutes, maybe twenty five minutes, and I mean not a titter, right? Not not a chuckle, not a guffaw, not not even a not even an uncomfortable, not, nothing. <laughs> And I go, you guys, I have to tell you something. We're making a live album here tonight. And I'm in this packed room. Someone in the back goes, no fucking way. And that was my favorite part of the whole weekend. And I wish there was a happy ending to that. Like, then I got him back and I had him in the palm of my hand. And at the end, they were rolling around like train chinchillas. Uh, and I, I, I popped a party favor and I strode off into the night uh, with nothing but glory trailing uh, in vaporous clouds behind me that were incandescent and difficult to see through because of the awesomeness that had blinded the audience. Instead, it, was, it limped along after that even more painfully because it Hindenburg so hard that there were no survivors to watch me patch up this dirigible and try to pump it up with helium produced from my own glands. So there was no lift at the end of that one. No, the San Francisco one went quite well, and uh, uh, we hope to put it out. We have no... Ryan said the summer. My understanding is there's modern technology, and you can pretty much put shit out right away now, but... <laughs> You know, when you're producing a record, you want to take that fucking post point of view where you're like, look, I got to fucking mix this. I got to listen to it. I got to. Uh, there's no symbols on the third track. Uh, <laughs> the Mellotron failed on the Purple Dance. I mean, I don't know what you want me to do. I'm not a fucking wizard, you know? I'm just a fucking record producer. I'm a lowly, humble, uh, uh, slovenly. Uh, no. I'm a natty young man who lives in LA, but I've got other shit to do. Uh, like, uh, I heard someone else was going to put out an album, and I was hoping I could mix that before I mixed yours. Um, no, it's going to... So the summer, I guess... I don't know how much mixing it requires. I guess when you're remixing down four shows, the idea of listening to four of my shows in a row makes me have so much sympathy for anyone who'd listen to this show. And so thank you for listening. If you are indeed still listening and haven't hit the uh, podcast eject button on your super cool fucking handheld portable iPod smart... Fucking steam-powered enclave, Euclidean recumbent fucking Stephen Hawking's biopic phone that you bought at Target. Why did Target close all of its stores in Canada? I don't even know why I'm asking that. I, I saw it on the web today, and it just struck me as a very odd thing. Is Target failing massively in Canada? Canadians are like, no, I don't want it. Too many kids sneezing. That was my complaint. I mean, the price was right, but after the fifth sneeze, I was like, look, I'm going to combust here. I, I, I am a minefield of fucking folliculi and paramecium and every manner of airborne illness here. This is, I'm a vector of disease at this point. There's so many hot children. You know, a child will, you know how they run willy-nilly at Target? Like, it, there's that Doppler thing, like you're standing in an aisle. Say you're looking at, like, you know, the cast of Frozen Dolls. Like, not that I would, but say you were... <laughs> And just singing to yourself softly and whatnot. And all of a sudden you hear like Doppler like, here comes a small child. And they bounce into you and you touch their head briefly to turn them and to push them away from you. And when you touch their head, their head is approximately the heat of the center of the earth. And you're like, oh no, no, no. What did I touch? Why don't you kids just wear little Petri dish hats and we'll all colonize another fucking world. 
This is all that kills the aliens in War of the Worlds, by the way. We've been on H.G. Wells kick a lot lately. And uh, in the War of the Worlds, I believe the line is, it was the humblest of God's creatures that did away with the Martians or something to that effect. And uh, I'm misquoting hideously. but uh, And it was, uh, they, the Martians had never, they had no immune system. So bacteria fucked them over. So like they were on Earth for about three weeks, fucked up London, fucked up France, whatever. And then up, and that was it. <laughs> They just kind of barfed it up, which I thought was a cool ending and very appreciative of our Herbert George because uh, he, uh, he anticipated that whole bio epidemic thing that would become so popular later. The greatest one of which, aside from The Stand, I only saw the first version, but is uh, what, what's the one with there's a monkey and I think Kevin Spacey's in it. And Dustin Hoffman is playing an army officer. Yes. Outbreak. Thank you. We're supposed to believe Dustin Hoffman is a career medical officer in the army <laughs> who talks like this. <laughs> and of course, his greatest line is, this is a very sick monkey. <laughs> Mrs. Robinson, your monkey is terribly sick. I... <laughs> I'm outbreaking here. Contagious over here. That's, that's, that's fag stuff. That's what that is. That's fag stuff. Why are you dressed like that anyway? I'm in the army now. I'm a colonel. That monkey's not well. He turned into Columbo about halfway through. I don't know if anyone noticed that. That monkey does not look... Uh, my wife would love a monkey like that. She really would. So there's lots of rock stars here. Chris Cornell. Wow, that's awesome. The first one I opened to is Chris Cornell and it, what it looks like culottes, but I think is a kilt. Uh, were they mound sans culottes? Were they, were they culottes? Were they the double long shorty pants or was it the... Do you remember back to 91 when you took this? Oh, yeah, no, those were... Uh, uh, Scott, I'm talking to you. Yeah, no, yeah I'm joking. <laughs> was it a kilt? I actually wasn't there. It, that's a documentary of the photographer that I'm producing and editing. Ah, I see. So you didn't take these. So who is the photographer who took these, Scott? His name's Chris Caparo. Chris Caparo. Wow. They're very nice. They're beautifully done. Steve Jones in a suit. Elvis Costello, who I have spent a lifetime uh, in front of drunk people in bars going, no, I'm not. <laughs> You know who you look like? I was talking to my friends over here. We couldn't fucking believe you were in Lexington, Kentucky. What the fuck are you doing here, man? You know, we, you know we're recording an album. There's a local song. So Albino Catfish Blues. It's a, really, it's a miracle. He's still alive, really. He's, he's had no skin on his body at all. And it's a, I mean, a terrible time recording this. It's a, I had to bring Diana in to See, I told you it was the fucking dude, man. My favorite one ever was in a bar in Texas, 20-something years ago. A girl came up to me and went, Are you the dude from NXS? Meaning the guy with the glasses in NXS? <laughs> now, I don't want to cast any aspersions on the guy with the glasses in NXS's looks. <clears throat> But NXS had Michael Hutchins, who was utterly like the Everest of fuckable, right? And then the drummer, who was the K2 of fuckable. Then there was the slightly plumper other brother who wasn't so fuckable, but okay, fuck it. You know, I couldn't get to Michael. 
Then there was another guy, the sax player. I don't remember. Or was the glasses guy the sax player? And then there was the glasses guy. And uh, he looked like if Buddy Holly had not plushed in a plane, but rather had re-entered the atmosphere like Ray Milland in that movie and had lost a good deal of his looks in a terrible re-entry accident. So this girl says, so you're the guy from the next house? And I'm like, you bow, I am. <laughs> that's right, Sheila. Because that's how they talk there. They say Sheila and whatnot. Eddie Vedder. <laughs> I can go through these like baseball cards. Nick Cave, yes. Ice-T, yes. No doubt, no. Ben Harper, middle. Uh, the game. I, you know what? I'm giving him props. I think I told this story once on the uh, show before. Did I tell it before on the show? Jennifer, anyway, uh, we, were on, we went flying to Australia, and, uh, uh, and Jennifer and I were on the plane uh, with the game and his posse. We were all in the same cap. No, nah, we weren't traveling with the game. You know, a lot of times when I go who-banging, I uh, <laughs> tend to go Antipodean in my proclivities, and uh, it's the way I roll, because my rhymes are hippity-hip, and... Uh, <laughs> So as the game is on the plane with uh, another artist uh, whose name will come to me as the story progresses. And uh, she was quite a tiny rapper and uh, the game was there. And then all of his dudes, right, his retinue. And uh, the plane had terrible turp. <laughs> was that a small moonjack? I heard what I thought was an Asian deer bark from the back of the room. Did anyone else? Because it had the right timbre, right? It was like, what? That's how you draw them near. Turn the lights down. Okay, don't do anything. Shoot, we were going to have fun if the crew was paying attention for a second, but I guess their fucking phones are pretty goddamn interesting. Can we turn the lights down for a second? There's a moonjack loose in the house. And put some moonjack music on, too. I'm talking about the game. Is anyone working on this show? You know what? This podcast is going to be released in June or July because we're going to have to mix down. We got a lot to mix down here. The, the whole middle part, Greg, it's just you going, what's going on for like 20 minutes? I mean, no one wants to listen to that. They'll flip over, man. F first, can we have the lights down? I don't know how the lights Does anyone who works at... Uh, uh, now some awesome Munchak music. I'm leaving it to you, Ryan, to rock us with some munch. I think I heard it again. No. Munchaks love Tupac. I was thinking more like an ambient kind of underground jungle noise, like because Munchaks kind of wander through the jungles of the southeast islands, nipping as they will on hibiscus as they stroll daintily their tiny hooves picking a path through all the foliage like a little devils that they are their brown ears wiggling on their ochre bodies with the distinctive strikes and the white splatterings sometimes they get lost and disoriented like that alright fine just turn it down I 
here. I'll provide my own music. I think I've got something here. Uh, yeah. Uh, no. Well, anyways, we'll play this anyway. And sometimes, like in that song Wildfire, when the pony becomes disoriented in the snow. If you remember in the song Wildfire, he goes, uh, There came a killing snow. There's been a hoot owl by my window now. And then like wildfire gets disoriented and dies in the snowstorm and shit. Like the stupidest horse of all time. <laughs> Sometimes moon jocks will take a wrong turn in the foliage. All of a sudden gold frops playing. They took two hits of molly and they drank too much water and they feel real woozy. Next thing you know, they're on Sunset Boulevard at the burrito place just about a half a block away from here. Then they wander into the Nerd Melt showroom through the back door. And that's when we mount our Munchak search. So we're on the plane with the game. No Munchaks yet. We're on the plane with the game. And uh, it's terrible turbulence. Really awful. Uh, the uh, Qantas... Stewart, uh, the pilot comes on and goes, uh, like, uh, uh, it's, uh, everything's buckled down. Uh, mercy. Uh, oh, criminy, this is the worst I've ever. Anyways, it's okay. Don't worry. No worries. And then, so, you know it's bad when the flight attendants, like, go a uh, childproof seat on you and, like, fucking sit like this, looking at each other like that. <laughs> So the plane begins to bounce. Well, the bouncing's not so bad. We've all been in bouncing. It's the pitch in the yaw, as they say. As Amelia Earhart so said right before she joined a lesbian enclave in the South Pacific. It's not the size of the aircraft. It's the pitch in the yaw, you see. Because the pitch makes you go, woo, and the yaw makes you go, oh, no, the plane oughtn't be doing that. Uh, if you were in a car and a plane and your, the, your car was fishtailing for like hours, that's what it was like, right? So we were just up there bouncing around and you look down at the map. I'm sure I've told this, but it's a wonderful story. So why not? Let's get to the end of it. Uh, you look down at the map on your on the chair. You know how they have the uh, air map or whatever. And most like when you travel over the States, it'll be like Des Moines and then like, you know, cursed earth. Uh, and then, you know, uh, BTK killers, uh, ch uh, children of the corn, uh, psychosexual incest Christian freakout, uh, uh, anti-abortion sign, uh, uh, hand fishing, uh, uh, people carrying guns in a Walmart. Like, that's, you know how the map tells you where, you know, you're going over? Uh, you go over the South Pacific, it's blue. <laughs> And then if something comes within range, and range is ra uh, long range, it said, I remember I looked down during the, the giant fucking bouncing, and it said, Pago, Pago, 1,500 kilometers, meaning we were a good fucking 800 miles from Pago, Pago. It wasn't even on the map. They were just putting it there to make you feel better like something was on the map. Like, this was a map with the scope of, like, fucking P. Reese original projection of the globe, right? Like, it was this insanity, you know? Uh, so four hours could easily and uh, not a move. My wife and I are holding hands lying there. And uh, of course, you're reciting uh, uh, horrible songs you learned when you were a child. Jesus loves the little children. You know, like, it all, right? There's no atheists on a bouncing plane. And uh, I believe it was Lindbergh who said that. And then he said, and there's no good Jew uh, like a Jew who's, you know, not in uh, the United States. And 
So, uh, yeah, Lindbergh was an anti-Semite. I just thought I'd throw that in to make the show funnier. <laughs> they made him into this huge hero, you know? Like, he landed and he had done this thing and he was taciturn and withdrawn. He wasn't built to be a hero at all. And even, and especially in the 20s, the 20s were like now without smartphones. That's all that's fucking missing. <laughs> People gossiped. It was all in the fucking air. It was instantaneous communication all over the country. He fucking landed within a day. He toured everywhere. And everywhere he went, they'd go, Lindy, Lindy. And he'd be like, Hmm. Because he had no fucking personality. He couldn't even manage it. Hey, everybody, you know, like nothing. He was the anti-Babe Ruth, who was the difference in the 20s, who would like be, I'm having sex with a hooker. Oh, hey, little boy, how you doing there? You know, like he did it. He did it all. He did it all. Uh, so it stops bouncing and breakfast is served. And everyone groggily wakes up in a horrible flop sweat. The plane smells of fear, right? Like, you know, you get up and, the, and as your head rises, you're like, oh, there's like a pheromone rush. Like someone's scared a fox, right? Just boof, you know. And uh, uh, in comes uh, uh, the game's retinue from the other cabin where they have been, we assume, clinging to their seats frantically. <laughs> For four hours. And some of these dudes uh, are dudes that were you to see them, uh, and their image would be that they were well hard gangster types, right, with hats and whatnot. So they come in, they did not come rolling into the cabin, by the way. They came into the cabin like chasing school children at Miss Jean Brody's Academy for Girls. <laughs> and they go, oh man, that was unbelievable last night. And the game's like, I thought we were gonna die, and shit. The other rapper wakes up, Carrie Hilton, and she goes, what's going on? <laughs> then they go, you don't know last night. And she goes, I took a pill. I missed the whole thing. What's for breakfast? And then... <laughs> They brought breakfast, and we'd been on the air, like, you know, it's Australia, so like 44 hours at this point. It just feels like it. You're like, your ass has never had so much blood in it. You know what I mean? Like, there's a rich diet of blood going to your gluteals. And, uh, you, have, you know, and so she ate like two pieces of melon out of the fruit bowl, and that was it. Went in the bathroom, put on a leopard mini and full makeup, and came back out in giant fuck-off pumps, right? And started taking pictures with everyone on the crew. Now, I turned to my wife and said, that is a fucking war horse. That is a star. Your army follows her into battle. That is Bodica, man. Literally, people were shaking with fear. You could hear whimpering from guys who sing about killing policemen. And she fucking put a leopard mini on. What I loved about them was I don't think they knew what city they were in on their first stop. They went to Sydney. We went to Melbourne. And I saw them on TV and they went, hello, Australia. <laughs> Which is a very beautiful city. <laughs> Located conveniently in Australia. George Harrison. That's the spirit. Bad brains. How about that? Chris Cornell. Steve Jones, we've had Elvis Costello, we've had enough Elvis Costello, Perry Farrell, Morrissey, mm, bubble, right? Uh, Nirvana, oh my goodness, Iggy Pop, he gets his own section, right over here, yeah, I do, um, put me over here near the bottle. George Michael, that's an awesome picture of George Michael, he's in action, so he's in flight and he's out of focus. Munchak. 
how to focus George Michael photo. Sometimes it makes them uh, come running. This is not a theory. This is a fact I made up. Thank you for the Cincinnati Reds pin. I've forgotten your name, young lady. Lisa. Lisa. Uh, Lisa said, not Big Red Machine era, right after. Um, but she went, but still Johnny Bench. Uh, and indeed, I remember this team as well. Uh, they were quite good when they weren't the Big Red Machine. Uh, they were good always because they could beat you to death with hitting. Are you guys going to talk about baseball? Because there's no alcohol here and, and we're in a comic book store. And you're not in one of your baseball-friendly towns like Ohio or whatever. We heard about baseball because we know who Kevin Costner is. But that's where our sports interest ends. I'm doing your internal monologue right now, and I think I'm fairly accurate with that. Suffice to say, tonight will not be the Pete Rose episode, but uh, if you ever have a chance to treat yourself to some Pete Rose, do it. He has a, a savage haircut that's a mixture of um, Mo and a, and a young Chinese girl. And... Uh, his thighs are enormous like the wings on a Barca lounger. He really brings it home. If there's one player you could imagine wearing the cologne Aqua Velva as an aftershave, it is, in fact, Pete Rose who pitched for Aqua Velva because the slogan went like this. There's something about an Aqua Velva man. Right, and he go, hey, I'm Pete Rose, and hold up a fucking thing of Aqua Velva. He's wearing his uniform. When do you put it on? Before you go to bat, the catcher's like, that is hot. It's Aqua Velva, yeah. It smells masculine like David Coverdale's new album. Pete Rose did the best thing, though. He would, when he watched it, when he gets to the play, he'd watch the strike going and the catcher's like, so they'd throw the ball and take I don't remember anyone else ever doing that because uh, no one else played with the mania that he played with. I believe the word maniac is not too light of a term to express Pete Rose's devotion uh, to the game that gave him uh, succor and whatnot. And of course, he uh, gambled with something close to a fervency, but then we all have peccadillos. You mean you're not going to be judgmental and do a big moralistic tirade like you do on everyone else? Not tonight. Happy New Year, everybody. But we came for that. Oh, you'll get it. Uh, they announced the Oscar. Well, we haven't even talked about the Golden Globes. We should start the show. Uh, if you're listening out there in Proopcast land, turn it up, dude. Uh, we almost had a munchak in here. We had an ephemeral, an ephemeral, we had a ghostly munchak in its spiritual form walking around ectoplasmically, uh, I think in a lot of our minds here tonight, in a miniature support munchak mode, which I think was an extraordinary stroke for the show. <laughs> Just to hear it cough in the back gave me reassurance that uh, my emotional needs would be supported. Um, I want a small animal to come up to me with a sign on its forehead that says, I support you and everything you do. <laughs> and then you feed it some... Ki I, I don't know what you feed animals, but you give it an animal food. <laughs> Kiplets. What are they called? You know. Hey, I don't know. What are you fucking... You've never fed an animal? I've fed them. I mean, you know, let's, I can use a metaphor, right? Uh, 
we're going to be playing everywhere. Next week, uh, we'll be at the um, Cine Family to show Igby Goes Down on the 20th, which is a fantastic motion picture directed by Gore, ba- Gore Vidal's nephew, Burr Stevens. That has nothing to do with the picture or anything. It's just the most b- bizarre fact to chuck out at the outset of introducing a movie. Tonight's feature is directed by Gore Vidal's nephew. <laughs> really? What other relatives does he have? In any case, if you haven't seen Igby Goes Down, it's really good. Kieran, uh, Kieran Culkin, uh, Jeff Goldblum, Susan Sarandon, who is divine in it. Does anyone ever seen this picture? No, no. One, two, three people. Okay. It is, it is quite good, though. Uh, um, how do I put it? It's like um, a sort of groovy Salinger. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, uh, it, it's really wild. It's, it's a beautiful coming-of-age film because it has everything a teenage movie needs, which is drugs, sex, uh, uh, you know, death, murder, suicide. It's really, it's got it all. Uh, it speaks to what it's like to be a teenager. Uh, I love the John Hughes movies. I'm as entertained by Breakfast Club as you are. I've watched it. And at the end, when he throws his fist in the air and there's a freeze frame, you're like, fucking dude, you're the uncoolest dude ever that won a girl. And uh, I get it, dude. Um, but uh, uh, this, one, this one really is a little more pointed. Uh, my other favorite one, of course, of that coming-of-age kind of thing is Rushmore, which I think is the most sophisticated uh, comedy of the last zillion years. And that's why I'm hoping... Um, I noticed that... I couldn't help but notice that the Grand Budapest Hotel won the Golden Globe. And you think, really? Uh, I don't think so with the Oscars, because everyone who votes for the Oscars is an 85-year-old crotchety man who lives in Brentwood uh, who's yelling at the postman for putting shit through their slot. <laughs> When the screeners come. What is this? I got a hundred videos. What am I, Father Time? I don't have forever. So, uh, yeah. Uh, The Grand Budapest is quite, quite witty and amusing. I really enjoyed the shit out of that picture. We're not showing that. We're showing uh, Igby Goes Down, uh, which is is one of the recent films. We don't show new pictures very much on the... Greg Proof Film Club. In fact, we never do. Uh, this one, I think, is from 2002, maybe. Somewhere around there. Uh, we'll be at Bar Lubitsch on the 28th of uh, January. That's a free show. Um, I know that's a crushing disappointment to the crowd that's come here tonight and paid money. <laughs> but you wouldn't want to go there. It's a warm bar atmosphere. <laughs> in the warm, embracing climes of West Hollywood, you know how bars in Hollywood can be so friendly and inviting. Uh, no, it actually is. Uh, it's, not, it's not like a singles bar in the singles district. It's, a, it's pretty groovy. Women can go there unaccosted. That's how I measure bars. <laughs> I do. If you walk into a bar and there's lots of uh, women together in couples and hanging around and by themselves and whatnot, then you think, eh, this bar's okay. They wouldn't all come here. <laughs> women do not go to bars to sit around and have drinks and cocktails with each other if they know a dude's going to come up and go, you guys are too pretty to be wearing those 20s dresses. <laughs> I think we know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Really, Greg? Uh, Creeps from the 80s come up? (laughs) We'll be at Bar Lubitsch. It's located in Western Hollywood across... In case you're not... In case you're disoriented here, because we're in Hollywood proper, West Hollywood's that way, uh, where the sun uh, sets, is it? And uh, the Pacific side of L.A., not the Atlantic side. (laughs) Just to orient everyone here. Uh, and uh, it's across from the pleasure chest where I'm sure a lot of you have spent some, thank you, some idle <laughs> woo indeed uh, I bought um, uh, an expandable muntjac there once, an inflatable it was more of a pleasure muntjac really than a practical muntjac it was, it was more decorative you could hang it from a ceiling you could beat it from a tree, you can throw it against the wall, you can put it on your knee 
Emotional support Munchak all through the night. Emotional support Munchak. Where do you delight? Emotional support Munchak. Come to my home. Emotional support Munchak. Shouldn't you start to roam? And then Munchak, Munchak, Munchak. We couldn't find you on the night. It was the music that scared you away. Uh, I can't remember what the first song Ryan played was, but I'm certain that scared the Munchak out of the room. If it had been Brian Eno's music for airports, the Munchak would have gone, mm, and dissolved into a puddle of comfort in the corner. Are you ever going to get off this? On the uh, 3rd of November, uh, I have no idea what's happening that date. That's far too far in the future. However, February, I might hazard a guess about or February, if you will, or, or as we used to spell it, Feb- February. Uh, the third will be at uh, the Nerd Melt back here in Los Angeles. Uh, on the 15th will be at the Upfront Theater in Bellingham, Washington. That's Ryan Stiles' theater up there. He has a little improv theater that he runs. I don't mean a little like, who's an acutie as a little improv theater? I mean, he has a theater and it's little. Uh, <laughs> he has a theater. It seats 99. Uh, and it has uh, carpet and... Uh, <laughs> Air conditioning and a snack bar, and it's nice. Backstage has this beautiful couch, and um, there's always some catering from a local Bellingham place. You know, just you know, nothing much, just natural sandwiches or something. You know, like a locally sourced avocado and radish, whatnot. And, uh, you, know, you know, a little bowl of uh, chia seeds. You know, keep your energy up before the show, and some pomegranate juice and then you know there's local bookstores and they just they like leave reading material before the show and whatnot something you can you know just bone up and go oh the Bhagavad Gita you know like I'll just you know before the podcast you know to relax and whatever it's uh it's 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 a lot like here So we'll be in Bellingham. Uh, you can go on our website, gregproofs.com, and find all this. And then we'll be back at uh, Bar Lubitsch. That's the 25th. We're, we're doing a lot of gigs in no- fucking November, February. Why, did, why is November standing in for February in my mind? They're both cold. For some reason, I'd, I have a negative connotation to them, and there's no negative connotation. I don't remember anything bad that ever happened to me. Oh, that's, a, that's a good way for fucking temp fate, huh? Uh, Bar Lubitsch, the 25th. Then we're going to Philadelphia. There, and now we're tempting fate. Uh, we're going to Helium in Philadelphia, which is a club that I adore, the 26th through the 28th of February. And I've misspelt it here on my own sheet, Helium. Uh, so I'm hoping it isn't. The last time I played there, I played with a local Philly comic, and I can't remember his name. I'll come up with it by the next podcast, and he uh, was like, I moved to Brooklyn, and all these fucking assholes in Philly are like, oh, you moved to Brooklyn now? You think you're something, right? Like, it's one of those towns. So he came on, and his opening was like, fuck you, you fucking apes. That's how he opened his stand-up show. And then everybody starts screaming, and he'd go, fuck you, I'm from fucking Philly, you fucking monkeys. You fucking animals. And, they would, and then they just fucking scream and loved him. Like, it was, a, it was a riot for like half an hour. And he goes, my father's here. I can't do a Philly accent. My father's here tonight. And I go, well, where is he? Why don't you bring him backstage? He goes, he's at the bar getting drunk on red wine. <laughs> so I really like it there. 
cheese steaks and whatnot, all that fake American history about how we were going to include everyone and all that, all that shit about liberty and working hard and happiness and white guys with wigs and fucking really, really, really. There was a guy named Button Gwinnett in the fucking, don't, don't. And all the documents are there. Like I said the last time I played there, the best uh, uh, um, uh, display in the whole joint at the Liberty Bell is the Liberty Bell's there. But then there's a display of, like, the history of the Liberty Bell. And on the 100th anniversary of America, 1876, uh, suffragettes had an anti-Liberty Bell fucking convention in Philadelphia, yeah, to protest that they didn't have the vote or any rights. Uh, and I thought, well, thank God that they at least put this up. It's in the corner and only I'm looking at it with a lesbian. But... <laughs> Such is the way of American history. Uh, the guides let me in. Uh, that was the, my celebrity moment in Philly. Fucking Ranger with the hat came up. I'm like, I love you on the show. I'm like, hey, I want to go see the Liberty Bell. I was like, come on in. And I was like, freedom. Oh, I threw off tyranny. Yeah, the shackles of taxation without relaxation. Taxation with mass vexation. Taxation with mad exhalation. I threw it off. I almost dressed like an Indian and jumped into a harbor, and then I realized I would be another white asshole. Of which the country was chock-a-block with in those days. If I may use the phrase chock-a-block. We were busy peopling the Caribbean with slaves during our formative liberty years, so it's hard to keep it in perspective once you get on the liberty trail. I'll also be playing Boston later this year, which also has a fake liberty trail, and also an area where the Puritans are all entombed. So it's Cotton Mather and Prather Mather and Bummer Mather and you know Flea Fornication Mather and everyone who ever made anyone feel bad about having genitals in the history of America. The reason why we're a mess is that the Puritans were here at all. The reason we're having a debate about abortion and not just giving out abortions on the corner with fucking coupons and a cigarette. The reason why we're arguing about marijuana and whether it should be legal when you can fucking buy booze over the counter anytime you fucking like. The reason why uh, we're uh, having any discussion about gay people's rights or transgender rights or any of that. The reason why the police are tools of the rich is simply that we brought over the most disgruntled group of unhappy gun-toting fucking Bible-beating asswipes <laughs> that ever fucking walked the face of the earth. And I've said it on the show before, and I'm saying it again. Lou Reed said this country is imbued with Puritan misery, and that's why we can't let anyone have fun or have any lateral thinking. As soon as someone has a lateral thought, like, you know what? If uh, there was less police presence and we legalized marijuana and everyone could do whatever they want and people had rights to have health care and shit there, and education, there'd be less violence and the country would be more progressive. No. No, I will not have it. That means dancing and uh, bufu slogging by men. It means, yeah, it means the black will run freely. We can't have it. We cannot have it. You saw the new Congress. Ouch. Ouch. I haven't seen this many ugly white people in one place since Gerald Ford's funeral. Sweet fucking Maria. 
people, I don't know why, you know, white people are reverse racism. Really? We're not doing anything to fucking forward the cause, baby. Look at the white people. Look at them. Embrace that shit, because you're one of them white people. I'm not talking about white privilege. I'm talking about white disadvantage of having fucking Mike Huckabee be one of you. And John Boehner and Jody Ernst and all these chucklehead, oysterhead types. There's no such thing as science. It's an opinion. Not really? Children were killed. More guns. Give the children the guns. Give everyone a gun. Give every cell in your body a gun. People should be born with guns. Never aborted with them. Uh, you know, wow, Philly. And then the next date I have on here is Boston. In April, we'll be in Boston, the 9th through the 11th. Uh, they know how I feel about them. I love them in Philly. Boston, uh, I love you in Boston, too. We're, we're on the fence about a lot of issues. Uh, your manners are pretty weird. Uh, like you go into the north side in Boston, and it's where all the Italian restaurants are in the cannoli places, so you'll find me there. <laughs> I wear a Hamburglar outfit. I wanted everyone in a blanket fort that's 12 years old to have to Google that on their phone right now. The Hamburglar is a character from long ago that was very fond of stealing hamburgers in the night while wearing the outfit of a 19th century criminal with a, li a large hat, a cape, a mask, and striped clothing, which no one had worn in approximately since Chaplin's time. And he, I think he, I can't remember, he, was, nom, 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 he, he like had a horrible, his voice was awful. He went like, burglar, burglar. Like he, had, he didn't even have a, he didn't have nothing. Uh, I love how they're trying to be like all folksy, like they're on your corner now and shit. And like we have salad and whatnot. So like, come, right? Because McDonald's used to be like, fuck it, there's french fries. When I was little, when I was little, that was their motto. There was no have it your way or anything like that. No, you're getting it the corporate way we fucking make it. But in the fries is opium. Because after four of them, you're like, oh, fuck, these are good. And then to top them off with Coca-Cola, so there was that sugar, salt, sugar maniac thing going on. Oh, my kittens, that was a fucking... Uh, but now it's like McDonald's around the corner. Hey... Just opening up here, zip. With a little feather duster. Well, hamburger, is it? I'll have corporate cardboard order number 54, made out of chicken entrails and ammonia. I'll have a milkshake with no dairy in it. Stat. All right. I've had a go at McDonald's. Who has not in this fucking room strode into a McDonald's, put their fucking money down, and ordered a fucking um, eggnog? What's the other one? Shamrock shake. Yes. Fucking shamrock shake. It does not taste like shamrocks. I don't know what shamrocks taste like. Although. Sure is real grazing in the grass. Grazing in the grass is a gas. Baby, can you dig? What a trip! Just watching as the moonjacks skitter past. 
then we'll be at the Comedy Works in Danvier, uh, Colorado. And you, I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to that trip. That's the 23rd to the 25th of April. Um, because they have legal marijuana in uh, Colorado, I think you can buy an eighth, is it, at a time? But there's no record because they don't do anything on computers because the government won't allow anyone to use um, any kind of plastic to buy marijuana with. So it's a cash-only gangster business. So you can go from one dispensary to the next and buy as much as you like. That's the flaw in their plan. I haven't exposed it here. It was already on MSNBC's boring pot thing. I'm joking. I, I watched it once. And it's the most missed. It's like watching Nancy Grace talk about pot. <laughs> Boy smoked some pot in Virginia, ate his family. <laughs> These are the heroes in the pot wars. Like, Nancy, if you have another leather jacket, I'm going to make you go to an S&M country fucking rodeo. <laughs> and a transgender animal is going to have its way with your jacket. There's too much fringe on that. If you're a lawyer, fringe doesn't scream jurisprudence to me. It screams wise men see only fuse. My wife and I uh, were driving back from uh, San Francisco on one of our ceaseless journeys around the globe. And uh, we were looking up Elvis Presley's death. I don't remember how it came up. I'm sure when you're with the one you love, often you'll turn and go... I'm caught in a trap. I can't walk out. Because I love you too much, baby. And then uh, she'll go, wrong Elvis. And then I'll be like, why can't you see what you're doing to me? Um, in any case, the subject of Elvis's untimely demise came up. I think it was because I saw Kiss that night. I don't remember what it was. In any case, uh, uh, he was a giant morphine fucking dilated addict. That's what he died of. It, we, you can go online and look it up. This wasn't Wikipedia either. This was fucking a source authority. This was fucking Snack Town's peanut butter blog. And uh, it's definitive. So don't even fucking question me on this. Again, this isn't a theory. I made this up. No, it was online. Uh, and uh, he had been, his doctor was supplying him with a mad amount of drugs. He had doctors in every fucking city. And he would send dudes from the TCB crew out with their little fucking uh, lightning bolt emblems that they wore around their neck and their leisure suits in fucking giant ass cars around Memphis to all night pharmacies. I didn't know Memphis had all night pharmacies in the 70s. I'm excited to know that. That was my first excitement. Secondly, that all night pharmacies would give you 5,000 milligrams of dilaudid at three in the morning. No questions asked. Try going into a pharmacy now and buying an antihistamine. You know what I mean? They're like, can I have your name? You're like, no, I'm not going to make speed. I've just got a cold and shit. I'd have to buy 5,000 packs to make speed. Uh, in, in, in the 70s, they just gave Elvis these drugs. And uh, so when the paramedic came to get him and the paramedic's name was Ulysses, was it? Ulysses. Because he was at the end of an enormous odyssey. He had been to C.B. Nick's house where she had enchanted him and turned his whole crew into pigs. <laughs> he had visited the Cyclops at Lemmy's house. He had gone everywhere. And then finally he had arrived at Elvis's house. And Elvis was quite dead. Uh, and he said, I didn't know it was Elvis because of his color. And I thought, kittens, McTavish. <laughs> they took him to the hospital and tried to resuscitate him even then. Uh, but he basically took a lot of heroin that night. 
And I thought, wow, that's a much different story than the one we were told, which was that he was on the toilet and just like had too many s'mores or whatever. And, <laughs> you know, and was trying to write a gospel song and shit. What a friend we have. No, what a guidance we have. And what a blessing we have. Oh, ah, ah, that s'more. Ah, you know, that had been lodged in his lower intestinal tract came shooting up into his esophagus. And a, and a 13-year-old girl shot out his ass. And a two-way mirror appeared. And you know how. That was what we're usually told about all this. Uh, a little less conversation, a little more action. Uh, then we'll be uh, with the Hoosline guys. We'll be at the Swinomish Casino. Yeah, you fucking heard me. The Swinomish Casino in Anna Cortez, Washington, which is only funny, and we only say it as Anal Cortez. Uh, at Anal Cortez uh, on the, th- uh, the Valentine's weekend. Uh, that's February. And then uh, the 20th and 21st will be in um, British Columbia, IA. You can join us there on our improv adventures. And yes, Whose Line is coming back for its 427th season on television. <laughs> People, as I've said on the show, people come up to me and say, don't you miss uh, Who's Line? And I'm like, no, it's still fucking on. I can't miss it. I have to go film one in a week's time. Uh, yeah, so we'll be on the CW in case you're a Vampire Diaries, uh, Jane the Virgin kind of person. Uh, the Golden Globes, we really have to start. Uh <laughs> I watched the Golden Globes, and uh, they were entertaining, I thought. I mean, uh, the best part to me was uh, that it was a transgender, uh, transgressive, AIDS-laden. It, uh, it was everything that's scary about Hollywood to everyone I was talking about earlier. <laughs> America thinks that Hollywood is a bunch of gay guys running around in tuxedos with kids. And... <laughs> In fact, it was on the night. And he was the best-looking guy of the night, and that show was fucking awesome. Uh, oh, c- golly, I've blanked on the name. Normal Heart. No, the Normal Heart. Did anyone see that picture? It was on HBO. Yep. To one person and everyone else. Greg, we have Game Boys and Xboxes and shit. <laughs> Greg, did you just say Game Boy? <laughs> we have Pong and Millipede. We have joust, Greg. (laughs) I made myself hysterical. Greg, we have a bear in a shooting gallery, and when we shoot it, it goes ding and turns and goes back the other way. (laughs) Greg, we have a magic lantern. (laughs) We're very busy at home, Greg. We eat sweets off of dwarves' heads as we walk through Versailles, Greg. You can't imagine the festivities we get up to at our house. We don't need your antiquated... We... We barge down the Nile with urns of purple incense swirling while Nubians dance, Greg. So your mundane... Golden Globes thing... Uh, So I I grooved on that part and that Grand Budapest Hotel one. Um, uh, Some of the speeches, the alcohol given out makes the show much better than it ought to be, really. You're really all waiting for the the Michael Keaton speech, which was fantastically incoherent. And then when when he got to the, I love you, buddy, you're like, wow. I I feel like I'm at the company picnic now. Which indeed you are. It's the show business company picnic. And evidently, uh, the Eloy have taken over the earth because everyone there was as orange as Yvette Mimieux in the movie The Time Machine. Uh, 
Anyway, the Oscars uh, nominations came out. We won't go into it too much. There's plenty of time to talk about the Oscars. It's like the Super Bowl. It's the never-ending story. Uh, suffice to say that, again, no women and no people of color were given anything <laughs> that they ought to have been given because everyone who votes in the Academy, as I said before, is an ent. <laughs> hmm. You mean we should move through the forest? <laughs> mm. But one day, one day a woman will win uh, an Oscar for Best Director again. And what a glorious day that'll be. How long has cinema existed? hundred and something years? hundred and twenty years? One woman has won an Oscar and it was Catherine Bigelow, who, by the way, is from San Carlos, California, where I'm from. No, I didn't know her. I'm just taking credit anyway. <laughs> Like I had something to do with the designation of her birth. If I had, though, I would have voted for her. If I had to pick a director to be born in San Carlos, I fucking would have picked Catherine Bigelow because she directed Point Break. <laughs> Never mind Zero Dark Thirty and all her, all her good movies. Fucking Point Break. Viacon Diaz. Buddy, this is your wake-up call. You're an FBI agent. I know. Isn't it wild? <laughs> Fucking best movie ever. Ever. Fuck you, Citizen Kane. <laughs> Citizen Kane can swath my man bag with everlasting fucking kisses. It's good. But it's not point break good. Let me ask you this, film buffs. In the movie Citizen Kane, does Gary Boosie pull a gun on a guy and go, Speak into the microphone, squid brain. <laughs> no, he does not. And that's what differentiates Point Break from other more lesser, more lesser. Increasingly lesser efforts, in my opinion. This is the longest letter in the history of mankind. People write us, uh, fanmail4greg at gmail.com. I read them all. Uh, this is from Com at Cogn Comedy Dignitas, mm. uh, which was, I'm having tintinabulation so fucking hard right now. Does anyone ever get that? Where there's a, a piercing tone in your ears? It's subsided. No one gets that. Are you turning into a Poe character in front of us? <laughs> I know why you're here. It's the ephemeral moonjack, isn't it? <laughs> Just because a soul is the only soul in possession of a belief of the moonjack's existence does not mean that that entity has entered the realm of madness. <laughs> and so the page is turned. Uh, I'm not crazy because I thought there was a moonjack. <laughs> Uh, Comedy Dignitas writes us uh, on Twitter, in your fat face, sun bear, <laughs> exclamation point. We were talking, of course, about wild boars. Uh, I didn't ask him to cue it up, so there won't be a music cue there. But really, there should have been. Maybe we can dub one in later. And through the miracle of technology, by June or July, have a wild boars. <laughs> Duran Duran wild boys uh, thing dubbed in there. Uh, we were talking about wild boars. Wild boars! On the last show. <laughs> wild boars always! Wild boars! Um, 
he sends me this from a, a website that is unbelievably precarious uh, called Listverse. Buzzfeed, I have heard of, even the, this Huffington Post. But Listverse, what? Are you crazy? I'm professor here. Do not cite Listverse and expect to get an A in this class. A series of accounts of the more dangerous creatures on the planet, including the animals with the worst claws or teeth imaginable, have, grips, have gripped Listverse readers. Have they? One can only imagine the Listverse readers in their seat gripped. In the clutches of the most uh, dangerous animals imaginable, claws and teeth and whatnot. Uh, he runs through a lot of them. Uh, sun bear was one, and that's why he says, um, uh, in your fat face, sun bear. They weigh 65 kilograms. Um, unfortunately for the rainforest, blah, blah, blah. Saltwater crocodile. Um, the rad weasel. The least weasel. The least weasel. You know the weasel didn't give itself that name. First of all, weasels don't even think they're weasels. Like... The least weasel works in the mailroom at CAA. William, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's bigger weasels. Weasels think they're ferrets or minks. Weasels don't think... <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I'll cheat you if I can. I gotta argue with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that was yours, was it? Well, it's mine now. <laughs> no. They don't act that way with one another. Weasels are like, good morning. How are you today? Uh, would you like some berries? I just picked them. And then the other weasel's like, I've just made some sherry. I know it's a little early, but why not come into my uh, place where animals live? Salutations. Weasels are elegant, and I, I take the most umbrage at um, them being called least weasels. Uh, shrew. And this, this, is, this is list verse writing at its best. Taming of the Shrew makes an excellent title for a Shakespearean comedy. That's the opening sentence. It would be next to impossible to civilize these somewhat bloodthirsty insectivores. And I, moreover than it being um, next to impossible, I would say trying to civilize um, shrews is a fruitless endeavor at best and one that is not to be embarked upon with any fucking notion of success at the outset. Should one of your friends go, I'm going to fucking civilize some shrews, you should be like, your time is better spent elsewhere, is the first admonition. The second one is, I thought you were going to write a screenplay. And then they're like, no, I'm going to fucking make these shrews wear hats and fucking drive cars. Or whatever civilizing shrews is in this day and age. They're going to be able to order coffee and uh, fucking uh, drink kale. <laughs> I would never civilize a shrew. Wolverines, uh, wolverines are just awesome in every way. First of all, their bones are made of adamantium. So they can regenerate immediately. <laughs> Secondly, they can smoke cigars, drink, do what they like. They're all from Canada. They're fucking good looking, uh, sexy, lots of uh, facial hair and whatnot. I love wolverine. Uh, Black Mamba. Black Mambas are delicious, for one thing. Don't eat them while you're driving. Uh, bull shark. Uh, I don't know what a bull shark is, but uh, it sounds fucking like a lie. 
Now, this one's my favorite, and I've always wondered how it was pronounced. Perhaps someone here can help me tonight. G-O-S-H-A-W-K. I've always thought it was a go-shock, but is someone from the place where gosh, is it a goshock? If it was a gosh hawk, that would be the best of all. As in gosh hawk or gosh hawk. Um, the northern gosh hawk, because they range some 1,500 kilometers from Pago Pago to where the Munchak roam. The northern gosh hawk is the largest of the bird eating forest hawks. Fuck, I had almost forgotten that. <laughs> Thank you, list verse. Uh, with a wingspan of four feet, fierce red eyes, dark gray feathers. Wait a minute. This is my agent. <laughs> Jewish surname. This got a little real. <laughs> Massive talons to take down large prey add to its terrifying appearance. <laughs> Has an assistant named Melanie. <laughs> if a human appears to be a threat to the ghost shock's nest, this ferocious raptor will swoop down and deliver scalp-ripping blows. Fuck. <laughs> There's no business like show business. Goshawks often begin eating large prey items such as ducks while they are still alive. Well, don't you have to be alive to eat something? I'm dead. Fuck, am I hungry? I wish I'd had some of those McDonald's fries before I died. Wolves. I'll hear nothing bad about wolves. Uh, the wild boar. The gray wolf remains a fully wild version of our domestic dogs. The wild boars present a stark and at times exceedingly dangerous contrast to the domestic animals. Can you flash the lights at all? Are you okay, Simon? <laughs> so good. Uh, wild boar charges may at times be fatal due to the power and mass of the enraged animals, which may respond with force to any perceived... Oh, God, the writing just went off at the rails. Thank you for that letter. Uh, uh, comedy Dignitas. Thank you very much. Oh, play the course one more time. It's always good. How did, um, was it Beyond Thunderdome? How did Beyond Thunderdome, the movie, not sue this video? Shouldn't they have just sued? No, we have the guy with white face who walks around and goes like this. We have the guy who swings on the thing. Thank you. It's fantastic. I love that. Gosh, what a good record. Uh, uh, someone named Richard writes me. Um, Dear smartest man. Thank you. Hi, Richard. Hi. How are you? Good. All right. <laughs> you know, errant, 
Munchak here and there. Uh, this week's podcast is one of the, thank you, made me miss all the significant, um, oh, here it is. I have something to add to your discussion of H.G. Wells, specifically the conventional wisdom of his grasp on science. I loved your riffs on the stories in movies, especially about Brando, blah, blah, blah. I spent a number of lost years writing a long essay for graduate school that included some intimate time with H.G. Wells. Now, I don't know what you wrote your paper on, but I'm guessing no one here wrote one on H.G. Wells, which is what caught my attention in this letter. And at this juncture, I'd like to say that last week I iterated or uh, that um, the character of the female Eloy who falls in love with our hero in, in the time machine was named Weena. Her name is, in fact, Mina. Please do not write me anymore. <laughs> She is portrayed in the movie by the actress Yvette Mimieu with some veracity. The thing to keep in... How would it be veracity, Greg? What would a futuristic fucking Oompa Loompa looking like person who the time machine went to visit who was being force-fed by the Morlocks who lived beyond, uh, below the ground and then later used as food like in Soylent Green, how would she be playing the part with any truthfulness? Well, it's a sci-fi part, so you have to reach out with your imagination, one. And two, when your skin is orange and your hair is white, it doesn't take a huge leap of imagination to realize that Morlocks are going to, at one point, put you in like a TV dinner. (laughs) I just wanted to say TV dinner because I don't think anyone's eaten a TV dinner in about a thousand years. (laughs) But if you remember them... Uh, they had foil on them and then you would leave them in the oven a little too long and the corners would become charred and so it was, uh, as you took it out it was the hottest thing in the history of mankind since the child's had at Target and <laughs> boiling hot so you had to use a pliers or, or, or get your friend or your mother to do it and, that, and they'd rip the thing off and then there would be uh, um, uh, rice which was always disappointing glutinous, horrible, uh, foreboding pile of inconceivable gluten uh, that was just... Uh, an execrable uh, parody of what rice should be. The fluffy fucking kernels popping up and greeting you one by one, like, you know, with their little hats on, like in the Rice Krispies and whatnot. They all have names and they make a noise. I'm crackle, you know. No, this rice laid there and was like, it's over for us. We, 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 we were frozen ages ago in a factory and, and uh, whatever life we had when we came out of the pond we were raised in has been beaten out of us and uh, there's certainly no nutrition left. And then there was... Um, Next to that, uh, sometimes mashed potatoes, which had a, 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 a bizarre and unfeasible curl to them, as if they had just been slopped into the plate, which clearly some weird machine had gone and like dropped them in. And uh, they did not taste like potatoes. They, however, looked a lot like potatoes. The texture was uh, like a granulated pudding that was given to astronauts during the early cosmonaut program of the Russians in the late 50s. How would we know what that texture's like? Reach out. (laughs) In between the two side dishes was a hideous apple cobbler that was uh, like a Grimm's fairy tale apple cobbler. Like, (laughs) if you ate it, a witch was going to fucking put you in a pot and shit like that. You know what I mean? The smell was enticing enough at the outset. Then the first bite revealed that beyond the sugar dome that uh, encrusted the top of that apple cobbler, there was nothing but hot disappointment in a big, <laughs> gross packet of fluided, like jelloey, puddingy kind of ickiness. And then the entree was often a Salisbury steak 
which I think it was a hamburger, uh, but they had put sauce on it and perforations in the burger uh, to indicate that something awful had happened to the burger earlier and that we'd salvaged it by punching it to death with a metal device of some kind to make it more flavorful and tender for your delectation. And there was an occasional errant mushroom or onion, a little pearl onion, something like that thrown in uh, to give it uh, some sort of like, hey, it's like food. Come on. Eat it anyway. It's like food for reals. Uh, they also took a year to cook, which was the whole, uh, I thought, uh, downfall of the TV dinner. Later, when microwave dinners came in, I never had a microwave, so I had them occasionally. The first time at college, I remember, I was introduced to a microwave. I put a tin of fucking <laughs> soup in it, and the microwave turned black and exploded, and I was like... These things suck. I don't even understand how it works. And then someone said, what did you put in there? And I'm like, this can of fucking soup. And he's like, you fucking idiot. And I'm like, what? I go, I didn't have a microwave. I grew up with the fucking Waltons. We were, we were putting up our own jam and pickles and whatnot. And my grandmother would be down at the stream, you know, fucking chewing sinew of uh, walruses to make it soft so we could, you know, go out on the hunt and get seals and walruses and whatnot. Like, I, I grew up in a rural atmosphere. I'd never fucking put anything in a microwave and I blew it up. Fortunately, it was college and I ran away. No one paid for that microwave. That one went on your bill. Uh, so thank you for your letter about H.G. Um, uh, Wells. Uh, I was going to read a lot about him, but I think we'll move right along into the next one here and then perhaps... Oh, no, no. What, there's still... Yes, there is. Uh, Wells is fascinating. He, he writes here because... I said that Wells didn't know anything about science, but he says he's from a blue-collar family and that Asimov, of course, is, is a scientist in essence. Uh, and thank you for your letter. I appreciate it. Ben writes me and says, um, I grew up in Manchester. I was talking about David Beckham and Posh Spice, and I said I had no time for David Beckham as a sports star <laughs> or as an individual or as a human being or as a commercial show or as a watch salesman or as a guy with his wand out in my underwear ads inside... <laughs> men's magazines that I'm trying to fucking peruse and he's in every other goddamn ad wearing a motorcycle jacket or his wands out and he's got a fucking sleeve tattoo and he named his children Cherry Pie and Bushbag and, uh, and uh, Staten Island and like he's, he's a mess uh, but evidently I'm wrong in one respect uh, I'm now 26. I used to go to a lot of Man U games. Uh, that was uh, David's team when he played in England. And traded the Manchester United Youth Academy for a few years. I'm starting to catch the drift on this one. <laughs> Between the ages of 8 and 12, there was a large indoor facility. Most weeks, I would stand outside the gate uh, of the professional field and wait for the players. Some of the players never stopped. Some would sign autographs. But week in and week out, the one person that would be there to meet people, guaranteed, was David Beckham. I met him a number of times, and he was always extremely nice and more than happy to talk and sign anything for the fans and kids for as long as it took. And he will always have my respect for that. Now, you may say, so what? He's a professional footballer. He should be able to make his time for his fans. Or, well, he was just feeding his ego, and that may be true, but he didn't have to. And so many professional athletes don't. Most, in fact, don't. He would have been well within his rights to finish training and go home to his family, although this was before he met Victoria. <laughs> Friends, PlayStation, or whatever it is millionaires do with their spare time. So I just wanted to let you know that even though you may not like him for what he does now and may think he means a corporate sellout or just an all-around cock, 
He always had nothing but time for me and the rest of his fans. And for that, I love him. Now, this request and dedication goes out <laughs> to Ben in Manchester, England. We've already had Wild Boys by Juran Juran. But it's obvious that the, Eng the bands from England are becoming quite popular with the people in America. Well, we don't have any, but here's one that I think you'll like by a gay man from San Francisco. <laughs> This one takes a while to get off the ground. <laughs> I've been dead for about six months now. But this proof cast was so compelling, I had to come back and tell you about it. Thank you for your letter, Ben. Uh, Tom writes, uh, how can you possibly say the Cotton Club's not a very good movie? Well, <laughs> I was there when it was showing in a theater. It's, uh, it's far from perfect, but it's worth a watch. And then he gets to the point. If for no other reason than they'll luxuriate in the tap dancing scenes with Gregory Hines. His scenes with the old dancers of the Hoover's Club and the scenes with his brother Maurice are priceless and aren't even dulled by the shitty acting, blah, 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 blah. Thank you for your letter, Tom. I saw Gregory Hines dance in San Francisco in the 80s uh, at the Opera House, I believe. Uh, and uh, he was magnificent and a very fluid dancer. And uh, he left this realm and it's rolling in the heavens far too soon for all of our own good. Uh, so I will agree with you in that regard. As a record of Gregory Hines' majesty, it is certainly worth watching uh, for that. Uh, however, as a movie altogether, holding together as a picture that keeps your interest from one end to the other, wow. <laughs> There are other movies you might, might find slightly more rewarding. Uh, you know, the boring preachy part doesn't seem that tempting to me tonight. So I'm going to jump right into uh, the people who are swirling in the heavens because some of them require uh, a little bit of finessing uh, in so much as uh, heaven has already accepted them and all we can do is stare in blank wonder at their majesty as they trail up into the sky. Anita Ekberg is in the fountains of Treve, way, way up high. Anita Ekberg was Miss Sweden and uh, uh, she was in the movie La Dolce Vita as well as lots of other pictures. And in the movie La Dolce Vita... Uh, which is one of the most trenchant and uh, cogent movies you'll ever see, and completely prescient by Fellini uh, from 1962, make a picture about the paparazzi. In fact, it is the movie where paparazzi gets his name. Uh, one of the characters in the movie is named uh, Paparazzo, is it? Or Paparazzi. And uh, in any case, Marcello Mastriani's in it, and they're all uh, vultures, and they swoom around uh, uh, Rome taking pictures of people and taking advantage of them for the tabloid press and whatnot. And uh, she's a star who's come over, and he gets to go out on a night with her, and they drive around Rome in their fucking convertible and shit, and she disappears and comes back with a kitten on her head. And uh, it's a scene you must watch. You must go on YouTube and watch Anita Ekberg carry a kitten on her head. <laughs> then she gets in the fountains of Trevi, and her body is indescribable. Um, uh, warring parabolas. Uh, you know what I mean? Like uh, giant ellipses caught in unbelievable fucking gravitational pull. Uh, and she, she gets in the fountain and goes, Marcello, come in. And Marcello is hilarious. And he just does a whole monologue to himself. It's very good. An unforgettable scene. Uh, this is what Anita Ekberg had to say about herself from People Magazine from 1999. Why do people always say that Fellini discovered me? I was in films long before Fellini. That's why he wanted me. And he wanted me even more when he saw me driving like a mad one around Rome in my Mercedes 300 SL convertible with my hair long 
along and blowing around, driving so fast that even when it rained, the rain passed over me. I never got wet. <laughs> Fucking A. She only made us wet. Uh, Anita Ekberg uh, ascends to the stars with full fucking bombshell honors. Uh, Taylor Negron passed away this week, and I'm really not sure how to approach this. Uh, he was a lovely and sensitive man, and his absence uh, will be keenly felt uh, here uh, in this realm. Um, I can only say that he will be in the highest realm of the stars because he was so lovely. Um, we were not uh, best friends or anything like that. I knew him because uh, we're, we've been in the same business together for a long time. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit uh, from one of the obituaries. I believe this was the uh, New York Times. A comedian and actor, and this is the part I liked, who described his style as California Gothic. <laughs> Um, they always say, you know, they give his movie credits and all that. We all know all the pictures he was in. Uh, one Crazy Summer and Fast Times at Richmond High. The Last Boy Scout, I think, is one of his uh, great turns. Of course, he was a tremendous stand-up comedian, raconteur, writer, and had quite a lot to say about the condition of being a performer here in Hollywood. Most profoundly, I think of... Uh, any comedian around, uh, he was in touch with that and gave voice to it quite a lot. You can go online and look at his columns in Jane magazine uh, and look at uh, on YouTube and see him speak about coming to Hollywood uh, when he first came here and taking a, a, an acting class with um, Lucille Ball and what Lucy talked about in the class and how profound it was. I'm not going to go into it because I don't want to do it injustice. Let's just say that... Uh, Knowing Taylor Negron is a rare experience in your life. Once in a while, you get to meet someone who's almost too rare for show business. You know what I mean? Too, um, too in tune and too sensitive. Uh, he was a great performer as well and very, very funny. Uh, he did a bit in a movie called Punchline, which is uh, a movie sort of about stand-up comedy. And uh, he plays one of the stand-up comics and he does his famous routine, uh, You Need an Area Rug, where he goes to the Persian rug salesman and the guy goes, You need an area rug, right? And he said people used to drive by him on the street and go, Area rug! Which I think is hilarious. <laughs> anyway, uh, Taylor Negron uh, is missed and loved and uh, this is what I wanted to read that he said. Lucy paid a heavy price for fame, he wrote of his experience. She knew its depthless, lonely suspension. In addition to stand-up specials, Mr. Negron was a playwright and screenwriter. Uh, he played a rare villainous role in The Last Boy Scout, as I said. In an essay he wrote for the website xojane.com, summarizing his many years in show business, Mr. Negron said that he accepted that he would never, ever be actually famous and was instead fame-ish. Honestly, I never searched out celebrity anyway. All I ever wanted was to be a tortured artist who occasionally wears Max Factor Tan Number no. 2 Foundation. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, there we are. Uh, a lot has happened this week, and uh, uh, th there's been massive uh, protests all over the world, of course, or, or rather massive demonstrations uh, in Paris. Um, uh, supporting uh, freedom of speech and uh, the denigration of violence and whatnot. Uh, yes, all the world leaders got together and marched. I don't think that's the significant part. The world leaders did it because of something we talk about quite often on the show, which is the fact that when people get on the street, uh, the world leaders are scared out of their fucking wits, and they realize that they have to do something. So all of them did, except Obama, who I understand was watching the football game on the weekend, or something equally important. But that about describes America's involvement in the world. Uh, when you need us, we'll be there. 
And that means to bomb you or to predator drone you or to take your oil or shit like that. Uh, when you need us in a show of solidarity about peace and nonviolence, you'll find us watching a football game back at home. Uh, I don't mean that speaks for everyone here, but I thought it was a faulty moment uh, in American history. About the people who marched in the march, uh, the three million people that marched around Paris, of course, uh, gives me hope to carry on in this world in so much as I'm against violence of any kind, whether it's terrorist violence or particularly state and corporate violence, which is weighed against us by uh, the war machine and the people uh, who employ the police to do their violence against uh, the innocent people who live in this country who are only trying to get by each and every fucking day. My point is this. Uh, having all those people march is an inspirational moment and, and should lift your heart. Don't feel lost in the morass of all this fucking violence and terror and that the media is going to throw at you time and time again. There was always this much violence and terror. Every moment of humanity, every moment that mankind was here, there has been... When Australopithecus was around the fire, someone was kicking someone's ass and raping them and killing them with a stick right around the corner. Believe me. When I li I'm, I'm only so old, but uh, the 70s, which I remember distinctly, was full of terror and violence and giant wars that never seemed to fucking end. And everything changes and everything changes for the better in a lot of ways. As I've said on the show a million times, the fact that the world leaders would even get up and march in this, uh, yes, there's a right-wing agenda behind them and all that shit, and many of them would do anything they could to silence every journalist in the world from ever criticizing them if they had even but the slightest motivation, and many have. Um, our own president, having incarcerated and jailed many people who wanted to tell the truth about what we're doing in America and what our policy is. The point being... Ooh, we're facing a world uh, where women are more empowered, where gay people are more empowered, where transgender people are depicted for entertainment on television, not in a denigrating way. And those are all huge fucking bounds forward, I can guarantee you. Uh, if you go back as far as I do, you will recognize that there is movement. And uh, that's the thing that has to make us all feel uh, better about what's going on. Um, uh, Kim Fowley passed away, who was a creep and a pervert, but he put the runaways together with Joan Jett. Um, Ryan, will you play the last, uh, the, the runaway song she wrote? It's called Cherry Bomb. They were the first sort of all-girl put-together teenage band. And after that, they gave us Joan Jett, for which I'm eternally grateful, um, because she totally fucking rocks. Uh, thank you very much for coming out to the show tonight. You've been the smartest crowd in the world. I've been the smartest man in the world. For every page that turns me a satchel page, for every bell that rings TV, a cool papa bell. And if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're very bonds. Thank you very much. Good night.